Welcome to New Life Downtown Sunday School Class, October 13, 2013. Good morning, everybody. Thanks for coming. Thanks for coming, Lee. Um, okay, let me pray for us real quick and then we can get started. God, give us the grace of being a people who can pay attention and the wisdom of knowing how to live well in this age of distraction. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, so um, I tracked my internet use this week. How many of you were here last week, by the way? Most of you. Okay, awesome. Um, welcome if you weren't here last week. Uh, so I tried my internet use this week, but I was also in the final week of a job, and I cleaned my computer on Friday and like wiped all my information, which is very convenient, so I don't have to reveal to you how I spent my internet time. But was anyone else able to track your internet use this week? Did anybody do that? No? Yes, you. You raised your hand, and now we get to hear from you. What, did you learn anything? I actually did. I, I tracked for one day. Okay. And I okay, so Monday I don't have a smartphone, I just have a flip phone, but I do have it, I can get my email on it. And I tracked how many times I I looked at my phone for something to call someone to text and check my email. That was fifty-four times. I checked my email thirteen times, I was on the internet nine times, and I kept track of the times that I thought about doing something on my phone but didn't commit it when I write down. It's, it was more than I, I thought. I mean, I reached for my phone all the time. Can you take us through those numbers again? I want to hear them one more time. Um, 54 times that I actually, like, did something on my phone, texted or got a text. This is in the course of how? One day. How, so from when to when, but what's the time? From today? when I woke up till when I went to bed. So, like, yes, we'll say six to ten. Okay. 54 times. Okay. And then 36 times that I wanted to. It's kind of like with Weight Watchers. You put do you want to eat a bag of cats down? So 36 times that I wanted to do something but didn't, but I, you know, and then check my email 13 times. And I also, usually at work, I have my email up and not open on the screen, but I can see and I look all the time. And so I, I didn't do that this week, which, because those words, digital distraction, that was huge for me last week. Like, I mean, it was paying attention to work when I checked my email. Yeah. So, um, and then... So how does that, how, like, what did that information do to you? Does that seem like more or less than you would have imagined, or? Um, it seemed like, what it seemed to me was, wow, I am digitally distracted. I have Pandora all the time if I'm not doing something else. So yeah. this week I did turn that off. She, not that music's a bad thing, but when does my, when do I have quiet time to think? Never. I don't, yeah. unless I... Unless I plan it, I'm going to have an hour in the morning without a quiet time to think then, and then the rest of the time, my brain is full of something all the time. Yeah. So that was, that was my big takeaway, not to remember it as much as I'm never alone with myself or never alone with God. Yeah. So. Okay. Thank you. That's, that's true. Any, anyone else? Does anybody relate or have like... Shared experience to this is my daughter Louise is raising her hand. She relates to you. Um, anyone relate or have uh, shared or similar experiences or very different experiences from what we just heard from? What's your name? Carol. From Carol. Yeah. 
I, I was just going to say that I, I feel like I'm a downstream person. I, I feel productive or really maybe important if I'm handling everything that somebody's putting in front of me. Yeah. But it, it doesn't, and I find this in my work a lot, I'm always a downstream. I'm reacting. You know, I'm constantly reacting to all of these stimuli. So yeah. I'm looking. Does anyone need me right now? Does anyone need me? Are they, are they assigning me tasks? Yeah. Instead of really taking some ownership of my time and of my day to say, these are the things that I really need to accomplish today, and I'm going to go do those things. And having a plan, and part of that is, to Carol's point, it's about having time with myself. It's about yeah. doing that planning process. So I really shifted to be very much a, a responder rather yeah. than an initiator. That's interesting. That's really interesting. Uh, what were you going to say? this idea of an age of distraction a little bit more. So um, a typical day for me, even like I said, I lost my dad on my usage this week, but I'll just tell you that I, I know my habits well enough to say that a typical day is like I wake up early um, most days. Sometimes I go for a run, and I hardly ever take my phone when I go for a run. I used to always take it to listen to podcasts or music, but I found that when I did that, people might call or text me, you know, and it's one time that I could rely on if I don't have my phone to be truly quiet. Um, and I even found that I'd want to check email while I was running. If I was like waiting for an important email, I'd be interested in syncing. And so anyway, just to remove the temptation, I just leave it at home and don't use it when I run. But so the days when I don't run in the morning, which is more, more mornings than the ones that I do run, I've come to feel like that time is, is really a time that is in my day. Like it's defined by my attempt to resist the impulse to look at a screen. Um, about delaying this sort of inevitable dive into the internet that's gonna involve every day. And I hate to admit this, but I wake up and I find that I'm craving information and distraction, like not very many minutes pass between the time the alarm goes off and the time that I wonder what's happening on Twitter or what the headline is in the New York Times or uh, whether anyone's responded to my witty Facebook comment last night or whatever. <laughs> so there's like a dozen different lures that are in the water um, although they all sort of lead to the same thing, which is just this, uh, this distraction, um, which is a negative way of saying, like, occupying the mind. Like, you, you, I, I want something to keep my mind occupied. Very and I'm surprised at how quickly I feel that I need that. Um, I think what I most need, actually, in the morning, especially in the morning, is silence. You know, quiet reflection space that is just space. That's just free of anything except for God and myself. Um, but what I'm, what I'm drawn to in the morning is something, again, that will give my mind something to do. Um, because all, I know some of you have already mentioned related to this. How many of you relate to this? 
issue that I'm describing. Um, good, a good two-thirds of us. Um, so what is this? Like, what is this impulse to constant occupation? I want to give like a series of frameworks this morning. If I have a, if I have a marker. <coughs> Okay, so uh, I'm going to give sort of a series of polls, because this is actually a pretty old story. Uh, this story of feeling overwhelmed by temptations to distraction. In fact, so the Gutenberg Press was invented in 1450, around 1450, uh, movable type, um, you know, printing production. So that more books could be produced more efficiently and more cheaply. And by like 150 years later, like we're seeing... Uh, in essay writing and in journals, people talking about the overabundance of information that they're faced with in the world. Like in 1600, <laughs> we have quotes from people saying there's just too many books to read. It's one of the key stresses of our time, is that there's just too much information available. It's impossible to stay on top of it all. 1600, right? So this is a problem that like people have been dealing with from very early on. Like we're not, we are in an overabundant age of information, um, but it's all, it's all relative to what we knew before. Um, this is also a big part of the American story in particular. Like America has always had, at least since the 1800s, late 1700s, has always had sort of two minds, two American minds. And one is industrial and one is pastoral. The industrial mind and the pastoral mind. The industrial mind might be best represented by Henry Ford. In the pastoral mind by Henry David Thoreau. Two sort of useful signifiers of these conditions. So Henry Ford, obviously, this proponent of efficiency, systems of efficiency, ways, ways to make brains work in a more efficient way. Um, you know, not only is he an important automobile inventor or producer, but he's more important for what he, what he invented in terms of production methods. Uh, mass producing things, having people do one object, one thing at a time on a factory line and getting cars produced uh, more quickly. That's the industrial mind. Our society's attempt to think better, faster, smarter, but mostly efficient, more efficient. Efficiency is sort of, you know, this, this god of the industrial age. Doing things better, cheaper, and faster. Um, well, we're better equals cheaper and faster. Right here with Thoreau, the, it's another, represents sort of another American impulse, which is to get away. Right? This is the guy who wrote Walden, this famous series of reflections about living for a year, year and a half, at Walden Pond in Massachusetts. He was only two miles away from home, um, and his mom did his laundry on Sundays. However, <laughs> still, he left that part out of the book. Um, but whatever, however authentic that experience actually was, it's this... Um, this uh, important American impulse to be outdoors, in nature, uh, the National Parks Movement comes from this American ideal of, you know, maintaining this pristine wilderness that is really raw, that is really um, dangerous and wild. Um, and, uh, and we see this in American transcendentalists like Thoreau and, and Emerson and people like that, that value ind independent thought, independent spirit in the, front, the American frontier. Um, 
So the tension between industrial and, and pastoral, we also might, to use our terminology, label as the tension between distraction and quiet, or crowd and space. And again, I think this is one of the biggest tensions we face today. So has technology ever distracted you while you were trying to do something that was quiet, like read, and you're interrupted by something, or study? Um, what about, has technology ever distracted you? These are going to be obvious answers. While you were talking to someone, like when you're in a conversation with someone, and you're distracted by technology. <coughs> or interrupted a meal that you're having with someone. Um, or has technology ever distracted you while you were driving? You know you're more likely to kill someone from driving while doing something with your smartphone than you are from driving drunk. I mean, the stats on this are becoming sort of more sober all the time. Distraction is a bigger threat to road safety these days than intoxication. Um, so I'm asking these sort of broad questions. Has technology ever done this? But of course, putting the question like that makes it seem like these are rare occasions. But the truth is that these things that I just asked you about probably happened to you last week, or even this morning, like over breakfast. Um, it's just such a regular, familiar um, part of our lives that I think we've almost become complacent about it. We expect each other to be distracted. It's not that rude anymore to respond to your phone while you're talking to someone and to see what that was and to sort of swipe, swipe the message clean or whatever. That's a normal thing people do. It's not considered rude by some people to sort of to talk on your phone while you're in the checkout line to King Supers. I see people doing that all the time, and I've done it. Um, Linda Stone, does anyone know who Linda Stone is? She's someone who's, who's defined this uh, situation. She's a, she's a technology executive from uh, Microsoft and Apple, but she has become kind of a, a techno-sociologist. Um, probably because she coined this phrase called continuous partial attention. So about 15 years ago, she coined this phrase. It's become kind of a commonplace phrase in sociology. Um, this is her description of what the modern mind is doing. She explains it's different from multitasking, um, in part because multitasking is actually a myth. Um, I don't know if you guys have seen like news reports on this, but they found that the brain actually can't do more than one thing at a time. I mean, chewing and walking gum, chewing gum and walking, chewing walking. Chewing gum and walking, or like maybe talking the phone and folding laundry. Like there's some sort of mindless tasks that can be um, combined. But multitasking, especially while you're at school or a professional environment, is a neurological impossibility because your brain fo actually is focusing on one thing at a time. You might think you're multitasking, but really what you're doing is your brain is switching between one task and another very quickly in rapid succession. Um, and that's why you feel stressed often after you multitask is that you're trying to sort of make your brain do something it's not really built to do, kind of like putting a card forward and reverse at the same time. Um, so continuous partial attention is another way of describing this issue that we're doing to ourselves. So what, it, what, this, what this feels like in effect, rarely are we allowing ourselves to give undivided attention, undivided attention, attention that is not split up at all. Um, instead, we're trying to pay attention to as many things as possible all the time, never turning any of them off, right? It's just continuous, this slow hum um, of, of um, what's the word that you use? You respond to stimuli, of a whole variety of stimuli throughout our day. And as a society, we should have rewired ourselves for 
CPA. Uh, we're making it a feature and not a bug, you know, of our system. Uh, because our minds are who we are. You know how, like, a lot of poetry, especially old literature, talks about the heart, the Bible, or the, the heart of the soul is the center of being, which is sort of a classic metaphor for your identity, who you really are. We know that these days, we know that that's really located in the mind. Your brain is really um, what contains for you the truth about who you are. It's the center of your being. So this feature of our brains that I, that I mentioned last week, called plasticity, for a long time, neurologists believed that, our, that our, our like neural pathways were pretty fixed, that our brains were what they were, they grew, and they developed once a mature brain to stay what it was. Um, but now we know that our, brain, our brains have this feature called plasticity, which means that they're adaptable and malleable. That we are, they change, our brains change according to what we do, to our behaviors and to our thought patterns. Um, our, our brains very much are um, sort of the summation of what we think and what we do day in and day out. Um, and so we're, and we can remake ourselves um, according to our actions. And so when we train, we've trained ourselves to only have continual partial attention, and our brains are adapting to that negatively. I've been thinking about this for a long time, not just because of my own admitted struggles in this area, but also because I'm a writer and an editor, and my job um, for most of my career has been about asking people to pay attention. I mean, I create articles and books and website features that are all requests or demands uh, for your attention. And to someone like me, who believes that we're meant to, you know, not to, not to put too fine a point on it, but to bear the image of God in all things and to participate in the renewal of the world around us. Um, I've found this kind of work to be pretty sobering uh, because I think of what I'm asking for as a pretty sacred thing. Um, as, and as a scarce thing these days. People's attention is scarce. And so when I'm asking for it, um, I think I face a really profound question of what I'm going to do with it once I have it. Um, and as a digital media worker, I'm working in a space that is incredibly noisy and busy and often superficial and for a lot of people very addictive. And I can play into that. I can use those ominous aspects of digital media and of this culture to my advantage. I can build digital media that perpetuates the noise and the business. And, and I'm rewarded when I do so um, by page views, right? Um, the more people click, the more money the company that I work for makes. And so um, I can build very noisy and hyper-consumable um, and superficial content um, that is good for business and bad for human value. <laughs> human value. Um, I mean, for instance, I can organize my company's Facebook page to make sure that you don't leave Facebook. Like, if I, if I do so, Facebook rewards my, my posts. If I design posts that, keep, that are shareable and viral, that will make you like it and share it with another person, Facebook will increase my other my future posts' chances of being seen by you. Whereas if I put a link in, if I put a Facebook post from my company that has a link to our website or to another related site that takes you off of Facebook, they discredit that. If that's my Facebook behavior, then they're gonna um, decrease my chances of being seen by you. Um, so it's to my business advantage because it's to Facebook's business advantage to keep you. Um, on Facebook, and to build an algorithm that will reward my posts and let other people see them. 
Um, now, at one level, this is just the business of digital media. It's a data-rich environment, and we're learning more and more about how to use that data. It's our advantage to get the word out, all that, stuff, all that sort of thing. I, I do think there's a big piece of this that's sort of innocuous, depending on what kind of message that you're um, trying to get across. But again, I think that my Christian witness compels me to step back and ask, what is digital media doing to people? We know that attention spans are declining, the data is clear on that score. We know that human brains are structurally changing because of online habits. Uh, we know that some people use digital media to understand and explore and connect with the world. But we know that many other people use it to isolate themselves from the world, and we know that it's addictive. So as someone who's charged with certain you know, convictions um, about, again, the renewal of all things, the convergence of heaven and earth, I want to ensure that I'm participating in that convergence. Um, one of the ways that I have thought about this issue and how to achieve the right kind of balance um, comes from one of my books in recent years um, from a guy named Alan Jacobs called The Pleasures of Reading in an Age of Distractions. Anyone heard of this book? Yeah. You should all read this book. It's so good. The Pleasures of Reading in an Age of Distraction. It's thin um, and very readable, very smart, but very readable and very encouraging. And Jacobs, um, who's a professor at Baylor, formerly of Wheaton, um, basically builds an argument that says that our reading, all of our reading decisions, the way we choose to spend the time that we spend consuming text, should be driven by one thing, and that's joy. Um, the deep and renewable pleasure that comes from reading whatever we love to read. So we don't need to trudge through canons of required reading, you know, guided by our guilt. We just need to read whatever we're trying to read, guided by joy. But there's two kinds of joy. There's short joy and long joy. Um, so the pleasures that can be gained from reading can be simple and fleeting, or they can be profound. And you get short joy from reading. I get short joy from reading books by like uh, Dennis Lehane or the Hunger Games trilogy, like really kind of consumable uh, fiction, engrossing tales that are fun to read and ultimately don't have that much to say. Um, that's like beach reading, right? Um, even though I've lived most of my life in Colorado and until last summer I had never read on a beach, um, I like this metaphor of beach reading uh, because it means reading like in the bright light of day while the rest of the world is working, right? You're just getting away with something. Um, and that's real joy, but arguably it's a short joy. Long joy comes from pressing into harder places and reading stuff that requires your full attention and your patience and your willingness to wait on your intellect to grasp subtler insights you know, that are found in more difficult books. Uh, I call this mountain reading, uphill climbs, you know, that leave you winded but rewards you with breathtaking vistas, you know, and a stronger heart. Um, this year during, Randall, during Lent in the spring, I read a book by a French literary anthropologist named René Girard, really dense, difficult to understand writer. I find him very slow going, but he teaches me lessons that I'll spend a lifetime absorbing um, and applying. There's a different kind of joy, different kind of reading joy available um, in that process. It's 9.30. What time do we have to leave? 9? 9.45, okay. Um, 
I want to give us time to talk, so I'm going to skip some of my stuff and say that my challenge as a as a writer and editor has always been how do I how do I promote long joy? How do I help people cultivate and create instead of just consuming? Um, how do I not perpetuate distraction? Um, but this is my challenge as a reader and as a thinker and as an individual as well. How do I promote long joy in my own life? How do I, uh, you know, figure out how to tune out the distractions just consume? Um, so I've given you these these polls: industrial versus pastoral, Ford versus Thoreau, um, you know, beach reading versus mountain reading, distraction versus quiet, and short short joy versus long joy. And I'd love to spend a few moments um, having you kind of think about where you are in this continuum, where you place yourself along these lines, um, and where you'd like to be, um, and, uh, and talk about maybe how you might, what needs to happen. And, I mean, ultimately, these are very sort of individual questions, right? You know your habits. And you can take tests like, we, like some of us did last week to try to uh, get more in touch with your habits. But you probably already know where you, where you are here and where you want to be. So um, why don't you take maybe three or four minutes and discuss it with the four or five people around you. And then um, we'll come back together and share a couple insights as a group and then talk about next week. Okay, guys. Um, we were just talking about how some people are um, less prone to the to some of the problems that I'm describing because uh, you might be like a digital introvert where you're not as interested in being connected to people. Um, but what any any interesting insights emerge from your conversation that you can share? Yeah. Well, um, I, I just shared something about um, I remember a pastor that I listened to a while. We talked about we go out to fast and pray and. The first couple of days that he was out there, he just felt really bored. Yeah. And it, it, it had something to do with taking all of the, the many, many things that were going on. Yeah. And then finally getting down to the point where he was um, not cluttered in his mind with all of that so it could be more yeah. more. Yeah. Quiet. Absolutely. Yeah, it can take a while to unwind it all. Anything else? I think something we notice is it's not just digital. It's just distraction in general. Mm. Like whether it's at work and like you can't get through one thing without four or five right. people or if it's just putting way too many things into your life so that you don't have any mm. free time at all. Yeah, that's true. There's all kinds of noise that you can sort of be addicted to whether it has to do with technology or not. Someone else? Yeah. Yeah, I was just, I was just explaining with our little group uh, that you know, at the end of the day, when I try to look at things, you look at life that when you die and it's over with, at the end of the day, the world more than likely is not going to remember you or the things that you were distracted by. And at the end of the day, it's all about pouring that time into something else as a kind of a, a guide for uh, you know, throwing distractions out the window. Once it's absolutely necessary or something can help assist yes. in another way. Just because you, know, you dig yourself into these holes. You look back and say, well, again, yeah, that was a lot of wasted time doing this or that when I could have been doing something else that was more productive. It's yeah. just kind of like, I just look at it, at the end of the day when you die, the people are going to remember you for something, you know, and it should be something uh, 
good not like well I saw him at the store all the time he was on his phone when he was going to the checkout line or he was talking to this guy and checking his text messages it's like to me that's rude I I yeah. whenever I'm talking to somebody I, I gotta I shut the whole thing off you know I'm, I don't even have a smartphone or anything of that nature but at the end of the day I I just can't do it it's just it's something like you know I, I grew up I grew up with a lot of no technology you know I play video games occasionally but at the end of the day it was all about you make eye contact with the people you're talking to, you you try to stay engaged when you're talking so that they know that you're actually paying attention to them. And at the end of the day, you feel better when somebody's actually fully yeah. listening to you. Absolutely. It's just like, did you hear anything I just said? Or you know, do I need to go through this again with you? And it's just kind of annoying. I think for some people, the, the problem is that um, the walls are so like porous between um, like your social self and your private self and your work self and your play self. I mean, I was just talking about how I used to fast, uh, you know, Facebook and sort of all social media during Lent, but my work is all on social media. I have to be on it. In fact, I'm going to invite you all to a Sabbath from social media this week, but I'm starting a new job this week that's going to require me to be even more present. <laughs> and, and so it's hard. And I, you know, what I'm going to try to do is, is, um, fast anything that's not necessary. But my professional life and my social life are like this. My wired life and my and my wire and my non-wired life are also that they're just really connected. And so it's hard for there to be uh, that's why there's these issues are there's a fogginess um, to the way that I address these issues because it's just it's a complicated context um, that I work in. Um, but I know no better way to address these questions than to than to Take a Sabbath and to have a hard break, um, like you, what's your name? Eric. Like Eric was describing. You know, real rest, real breaks are what uh, make real wisdom possible, what help us achieve real wisdom. So uh, I want to invite you to take a Sabbath this next week from social media or digital media and to come back next week sort of ready to discuss what you've learned from having a, a gap. This can look different for different people. It might mean something really specific for you, like no streaming video, no Netflix. Uh, or you know, photo sharing, or whatever your thing might be. Uh, like I said, I'm starting a new job this week, and so I'm going to be active in social media, but I'm going to do no non-necessary internet, no Red Sox coverage, which is going to be hard this week. Uh, no reading tomorrow about what the Broncos do today. Um, uh, no movie reviews, no obsessing over the train wreck that's happening in Washington, D.C., um, that kind of thing. Um, that's going to be what it means for me to have a, a Sabbath. So whatever it means for you, take a break this week. Have some gap, some hard break from something that you do habitually that creates noise in your life. And again, whether that's digital or analog, have a break from it this week. And then we'll come back next week talking about those gaps. And next week we'll, we'll kind of explore the, the meaning and purpose of silence. Um, and that'll be our next step. Yes? I, I think, too, though, it's not just about limited, it's not just about changing Right. It's about understanding what's under the behavior. So if you're doing the fast to pay attention to what, what's underneath it, what's driving me, what's the yeah. feeling I have before I enter this yeah. distracted phase, why am I so reluctant to be with myself, why am I so needy to say I need whatever it is, approval, or I need to feel connected, or I need... So to that, that to me is the real kernel, is to figure out what's under the behavior that's driving me into this repetitive or addictive kind of behavior. That's the whole purpose of a, of a break, is to explore that very issue. So thanks for defining that. That's great. 
Okay, thank you guys. See you next week. Thanks for coming.